Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to the Midnight Myth. Back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture podcast. You name it, we talk about it, we analyze, and we discuss it. And we are back with another episode. I am very, very, very excited to be here again. We're going to continue our conversation, which started last week. And that is about classic Disney stories. We've been wanting to talk about them for a while. We kicked off with Sleeping Beauty last week, and now we're going to dive into the OG, the original Snow White and the Seven Motherfucking Dwarfs. Wow, just starting right out of the gate, talking about children's movies with F-bombs. I love it. That's just how I roll here at the Midnight Myth. Yeah, thank you. So I guess this is going to be very similar structurally to our last week's episode I mean, spoiler wall for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. For the movie from 1937 that literally every animated movie has a major debt to. It's literally the first Disney animated feature. It started this entire cinema project of Disney's where they would make animated features from public domain stories such as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So yeah, spoiler wall is up. We're going to talk all things Snow White. I'm very excited to get into this subject. Snow White, when I first saw it as a kid, with those seven dwarfs, meant a ton to me. I loved it. It has the magic mirror on the wall. It has the poisoned apple. It is truly a classic piece of cinema that can be enjoyed on so many levels. And we're going to give it the good old Midnight Myth treatment today. Yes, we are. You know, it's funny when we were rewatching this for the podcast, uh, I felt like it had been a long time since I watched Snow White and it probably has. But as soon as we hit play, every single image came back to me. And I realized that every moment in that movie is just burned into my memory. Every frame is iconic. Every song is beautiful. Every character is uh, something that warms my heart. So I'm very excited to talk about the movie. I'm excited to talk about how it intersects with uh, our Sleeping Beauty podcast from last week and how the fairy tale has evolved over the centuries and how much we can learn from that fairy tale in the first place. And we had a long discussion last week on the difference between a myth and a fairy tale, and a folktale and a legend. So if you want to catch up on that conversation, I suggest listening to last week's episode. Yeah. We're not going to really cover that too much. But the one thing I'll say, my theory last week was that uh, Sleeping Beauty was as much a fairy tale as a myth and had a mythic read to it. I think that holds up with Snow White Just the same, if not more. Sure, and I think we'll uncover tonight several of the places where it intersects with classic myth themes or mythological themes. So I'm very excited to dive in. Definitely. Well, before we do this, Laurel, um, you know, do your thing. 
Oh, do my thing? Yeah, the, do your if thing. If people want to reach us thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So if you guys want to reach us, the best place to do so is Twitter. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Also, head over to our website. It's www.midnightmyth.com. You can drop us a line on the contact form. You can sign up for our email list. You'll just get a newsletter every month or so with uh, new updates and episodes and blogs. Uh, and also check out the blog while you're at the website. There's some new stuff on there in the last couple of weeks. Hit shop to shop our new merch store. You can get Midnight Myth and Wheel of Ka teas and totes and mugs and sweatshirts and everything under the sun you can get at the Midnight Myth shop. And the last thing is uh, consider supporting us on Patreon. So at the Midnight Myth website, midnightmyth.com, if you hit the Patreon link, you can go to the page to support us. So if you are enjoying listening to the podcast and you want to help us continue to make this for free, you can support us for a small monthly donation, as little as a dollar a month and up to whatever you want to give. And every level gets a different kind of perk. So that might be discounts on merchandise, that might be a shout out on the podcast, or it might be a special bonus episode every month. So if you want to help us out, check us out on Patreon and uh, kick in whatever you can. We really appreciate it. So it might be a while since you've seen Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So we'll just do quick high level um, recap of the basic story. Snow White is the princess. She has a evil stepmother. The stepmother is jealous of her natural beauty. So the stepmother tries to hold her down by forcing her to do chores, by forcing her to live in rags. And she has a magic mirror to which she asks, magic mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And the magic mirror responds that it's Snow White. Well, this pisses her off. So she sends a huntsman to try to kill Snow White, who almost does but can't and just says, run away. She runs away into the woods and scared and lonely, she comes across the home of the seven dwarves. The seven dwarves um, sort of take her in. She like Actually, she kind of maternally takes care of them more than they take her in. Absolutely. So she takes care of them. They love her because uh, of her just innate beauty. And then the uh, evil you know, mother-in-law dresses up like a witch and feeds Snow White a poisoned apple, which curses her to perpetual sleep until love, love someone that loves her gives her a kiss, in which case then comes the prince who kisses her, and uh, she wakes up. Oh, the uh, mother-in-law dies because the dwarves chase her off a cliff, and Snow White then goes to the kingdom and lives happily ever after. Beautiful recap. Very quick. Those are the main beats of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Um, where would you like to begin in terms of structuring our analysis? I think... We should maybe start with the source material. Is that cool with you? I think so, too. Um, last week, we talked about Sleeping Beauty and the really kind of scary inspiration that Sleeping Beauty had and how much it shows you in looking at those original fairy tales, how much Disney sanitizes its content for younger audiences. The funny thing about Snow White is that you watch that movie from 1937 and you're like, did they tone this down at all? Because it is still horrifying. The kind of images that you see, the kind of things that happen to the characters are not things that like I feel uh, parents today would naturally show their kids. It's pretty remarkable that that was accessible to us at such a young age. But uh, it definitely did leave out a couple of the uh, less savory elements from the original fairy tales. The primary source material for uh, Snow White as we know it today is from the Brothers Grimm. Uh, and their household and nursery tales from 1812. Uh, now this, as we talked about last week, was a compendium of orally told folk tales from the German countryside. The Brothers Grimm, Jacob and Wilhelm, went around the country and said, tell us your stories. And some of these had influence from literary tales by Charles Perrault and the French, and others seemed to have been just orally passed down in Germanic cultures for several years or centuries. And Snow White is closer to that second part. Although, uh, just like with Sleeping Beauty, there are some elements that can be traced back to Italian folktales by Jean-Baptiste Basile, and even before then, even into Greek mythology. The Grimm story begins with a queen sitting at her window sewing, and she pricks her finger with her needle, and 
A couple of drops of blood spill onto the snow outside of her black window, and she looks and sees the red on the snow and thinks to herself, I wish I had a child whose lips were as red as blood, skin as white as snow, and hair as black as the wood on this window frame. And then, wouldn't you know it, she ends up having a baby with all of these features. Now, unfortunately, the queen dies not long after she has a child, and the king remarries a very vain woman who has a magic mirror that is constantly confirming that she is the fairest woman in the land. Until, one day, when Snow White is all of seven years old, the magic mirror says, actually, your stepdaughter is a thousand times more beautiful than you. So the queen hires a huntsman to kill Snow White and bring back her lungs and liver as proof that she is dead. The huntsman, however, is enchanted by Snow White's beauty, so he tells her to run away and ends up bringing the queen the organs of a slain boar instead of the girls. It's also implied that the queen was going to devour the organs of Snow White, so uh, very cute right there. Snow White ends up running into the woods, and she comes across a cottage where she falls asleep. This is all going to sound very familiar. Seven dwarves show up and discover her. She tells her story, and she agrees to look after the house for them in exchange for a place to stay that's safe. Now, the queen discovers that her huntsman has deceived her, and she goes to the forest in the guise of an old peddler woman selling wares. And she does this three times, instead of the one time that we see her do it in the Disney movie, each time in a different disguise. Even though Snow White has been told not to let anybody in, she thinks that this old woman who's coming to her selling things is very innocent. And the first time the woman comes by, she's selling bodice laces. Snow White thinks the bodice lace is very beautiful, so she lets the woman tie a, a lace onto her bodice. The woman ties it so, so tight that Snow White can't breathe and she passes out, seemingly dead. So the queen, in disguise, thinks that she has succeeded. But the magic mirror gives it away and says, Snow White is still more beautiful than you. And that's because the dwarves have come home and cut the bodice lace. So the queen comes back the next day with a poisoned comb. She does the same thing once again, brushes Snow White's hair. She falls down dead. The dwarves come home, remove the comb, and she's fine. The last time the woman comes by in yet another disguise, it's with uh, a ware that she's selling that we're going to recognize. It's a poisoned apple, but it's only poisoned on one side. So there's a red side and a white side. And she gives the apple to Snow White, who's finally suspicious. She's like, maybe I won't let you in. Uh, there could be something wrong with this apple. I almost died the last two days. Yeah, maybe now I'm going to exercise a little bit of caution. But the, uh, the old woman, the queen in disguise, says, well, no, I'll take a bite of the apple and I'll show you. It's fine. She takes a bite of the unpoisoned side and demonstrates that it's fine. And Snow White is like, okay, great. That apple looks so delicious. Let me take a bite. And of course, she falls down, seemingly dead. This time, the mirror confirms that the queen is the fairest of all because she is, in fact, dead. Now, the dwarves come home and find their friend and caretaker dead, and they're devastated. They can't seem to find anything wrong with her, like a bodice lace or a comb. So they mourn, and they prepare for her burial. But she's so beautiful, even when she's dead, that they can't stand to put her in the ground. So they fashion a glass coffin and put Snow White in there so that they can see her. They can see the color in her cheeks. They can see how beautiful her face still is when she's dead. So she stays in the coffin. In the translation that I read, it says she stays in the coffin for, quote, a long time, end quote. <laughs> Very specific. So this could be, what, weeks? Months? Years? A thousand years? And I think in most interpretations of this, it's years. So she's seven years old when she goes into the woods. And I think it's assumed that she wakes up an adult at the end of this story, that she blossoms, that she continues to age in the coffin. Now, as she is sitting in the coffin, not decaying, just uh, you know, seemingly dead, a prince happens by, as princes are wont to do, and is so moved by her beauty, he offers to buy the coffin, or for the dwarves at least to give it as a gift so that he can look and cherish her. Now the dwarves agree, and the prince's servants carry off the coffin. One of them stumbles, and this dislodges the piece of apple that is still lodged in Snow White's throat, and she wakes up. 
No true love's kiss, of course. Oh, man, that's cheap. Yeah, right? There's never a true love's kiss in these actual stories. Uh, So the prince and Snow White get married, and they invite Snow White's evil stepmother to the wedding, which is super awkward. Well, Snow White presumably doesn't know that it was her stepmother who tried to poison her at this point. Oh, she does know. Oh, she does know. Yeah, she does know. But Snow White's stepmother doesn't realize whose wedding she's invited to. So she shows up. Uh, after asking her magic mirror who the most beautiful woman in the land is, and the magic mirror says that the new young queen is more beautiful than she. So the stepmother goes to the wedding, finds out it's Snow White, is mortified, and Snow White and the prince make her put on a pair of iron shoes that have been heated with hot coals until they are like burning hot, and Snow White commands her to dance in these iron shoes until she falls down dead. Damn. And they lived happily ever after. Damn. I know. That is I would some... say that is ice cold, but that is not ice cold. That is like That's hot. definitely cruel and unusual punishment. So thank you for recapping the whole story of the original. Yeah. I really appreciated <laughs> that. I wonder, in terms of the edits and changes, so there is the superficial edit and change where... And there are three attempts to poison Snow White, which isn't successful until the third attempt with the apple. I think in terms of the movie, you really don't need that. It only needs to be one. Right. Yeah. To get the point across. It makes sense in telling that around the campfire while you might do three times. But in terms of making it a cinematic experience, good cut there. And uh, I think torturing her to death with iron hot dancing irons um, it's a little much. Yeah, that's a little much for kids. It's a little much for so kids. I can see why Disney cut that out. But what's interesting compared to Sleeping Beauty is how the basic structure of the story is fundamentally unaltered by the Disney adaptation. The Disney adaptation is very true to the original grim story of Snow White, which begs the question, what's this story really about? And I think... I'm going to offer an interpretation of what I think it's about, and certainly by no means is this the only interpretation. I think we are seeing a recontextualization of the myth of Persephone. All right. I think it is very much about young women being separated from the home, having to fend for themselves in an underworld, which is symbolic to the coming of age, And I would like to read Snow White through a mythic lens. I love it. So mythic lens number one, Snow White can talk to animals, legitimately communicates to them. She has magic powers. This is very like a tree goddess, nature goddess, very natural. What else is she really good at other than talking to animals in this movie? Well, she pretty much knows how to run a home. Nobody is born with how to cook and clean. You must be taught. However, Snow White doesn't actually have a maternal figure to cater to this instinct. Yeah. It's natural to her. Because it's natural to her, she operates more like a deity who is a goddess of... Of hearth and home. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. This is something we notice as watching this movie where like she comes upon the the dwarves household and is like, oh my goodness, there are children without a mother. I could be their mother. And she has no uh, consistent mother figure who has shown her how to do this, but she instinctually uh, wants to tap into that energy. It's pretty amazing. And it's very cool. So we have now this um, maternal type, you know, goddess creature in Snow White who represents both the raw fertility of the animal kingdom, plus the sort of maternal instincts of home rearing, in particular in a medieval or ancient world sensor scenario. And she has the dwarves. And I think the seven dwarves are significant. I'm going to put a of pin course, on that because yeah. I want to talk a lot about the dwarves in this conversation. Great. But let's read the dwarves. So each dwarf, dopey, sneezy, bashful, doc, happy, grumpy, and sleepy. Sleepy are personifications of different human traits, almost as if they are spirits that inhabit those very traits that, hey, if you're grumpy, it's because the grumpy dwarf spirit is there. So she ends up communing with these other like spirit-type 
personification of trait dwarfs who are there helping shield her in this literal and symbolic underworld that she descends into once she is kicked out from the kingdom. In that, she gets poisoned and then a temple and shrine is built to her where people can come and make supplications and offerings in this. Oh, yeah. And who comes but the prince if who is in, who is in Apollo? So the sun literally comes, you know, the Apollo figure, the prophecy, the most beautiful of all the gods comes and resurrects her from this death, takes her out of the underworld and back to heaven. And it's telling that the castle that they go to at the end of this movie is not the castle from where it starts. And it's framed with a halo with angelic light as if Apollo is there ushering her in back to Mount Olympus. Yeah, she's ascending out of uh, sort of a dark underworld into a kind of heaven. Which is very much reminiscent of the story of Persephone. Yeah. Persephone, the daughter of Demeter, who ends up being kidnapped by Hades and dragged into the underworld. And Demeter is so upset that she's lost her daughter that she does not allow any grain, any plant to grow on earth so that the humans complain to Zeus through their prayers, where Zeus says part of the world, that part of the time, Persephone must stay in the underworld. The other part, she can go with Demeter and Demeter can allow plants to grow. And Persephone and Snow White are very similar. Um, what does Persephone get do that gets her stuck permanently in the underworld? She eats a pomegranate, a pomegranate, pardon me. What does Snow White do that gets her stuck in the underworld? She eats an apple. The idea of eating these fruits as sort of like succumbing to the like underworld, succumbing to your growth, these things that have seeds, these things that are both red, yeah. you know, like, so like they're very similar in terms of why a pomegranate, why an apple, they're not that dissimilar fruits. And I think we are seeing a lot of that, the story of Persephone being sort of retold, repackaged, certainly through the context of a medieval society, not an ancient Greek society, it's not described with the language of gods, but it's not that hard to just switch it and be like, oh, yeah, Snow White, she's a minor goddess. Oh, these these dwarves, these are like fairies or spirits, you know, that like can help people sneeze when they need to. Absolutely. Well, and there's another element of the story in the evil queen or the stepmother that, like uh, we talked about with Sleeping Beauty and Maleficent, evokes the sort of jealous Hera or evokes the uh, sort of mythological themes of mortals claiming to be greater or more powerful or more beautiful than the gods or the goddesses and how that is often the downfall of man in Greek myths. Uh, clearly the trait that defines the stepmother is jealousy over Snow White's beauty. It's what causes her to go through all of these incredible measures to try and destroy a child it's just this feeling of jealousy over someone's outer beauty. And that feels very um, relevant when we're talking about relating the story to Greek myths. But it's also, when you talk about the story of uh, Persephone, that's a, a myth about mothers and daughters. And one thing that I would love to point out with regard to the grim fairy tale that inspires Snow White is that the original 1812 edition of this story it wasn't a stepmother who was uh, harassing and trying to harm Snow White at every turn. It was a biological mother. It wasn't until 1819 with the second edition and then subsequent editions of Nursery and Household Tales that the Grimm brothers changed it to a stepmother, presumably to tone it down for a younger audience because the, the book was more of an anthropological study than uh, you know, a, a book about entertaining youngsters. So how do we make this a little bit more palatable? We change the mother, who is trying to destroy and eat the heart of her daughter, into a stepmother, who is a replacement figure that is a little bit less threatening to our idea of what mothers are supposed to be, nurturing, caring, and protective. Very interesting that the original... Uh, origin of the story had a psychotic mom trying to kill her own daughter. Well, and to go back to its sort of mythical foundations, 
that's a, a direct mirror of the recurring theme that we talk about on the podcast a lot with uh, Kronos or Saturn devouring his child, devouring Zeus. It's the older generation cannibalizing the younger. Uh, we don't really know why this recurs. We have lots of theories, and a lot of those are psychoanalytical, but uh, this recurs uh, often in tales of fathers and sons, but here we see a version of it with mothers and daughters, and it's all based around this sort of sexual jealousy. Oh, yeah, of the, the daughter who is more beautiful. Who is more beautiful. Yeah, who will capture the eye of more princes, and you can't have that. Right. It It distinctly puts the jealousy in feminine terms yeah. by making it about feminine standards of beauty. Whereas in other stories, you mentioned Kronos, it was, there was a prophecy that his son would literally upend his power. Yeah. Whereas if we put this Snow White through the lens of medieval, you know, Central European, predominantly Germanic like, cultures, the, the threats to the woman's power is the threat of her looks. It's the threat of her exterior appearance. There's no, like, she's going to come in, like, upend me and take the kingdom away from me. But no, it's that she'll be more beautiful. And by beautiful, be more powerful than me. And I can't have that. My power is my beauty. Right. Which is part of the, you know, soup that we contemporaries, when dining on the Snow White, is really unappealing. You know, from the perspective of women should be equal to men, you look at these very patriarchal stories where, you know, what motivates the villain is that she wants to be the prettiest woman in the world. Right. She can't stomach being the second prettiest, so she has to murder a child. Yeah, and it's easy to read this tale if there is a moral to it at all as uh, you should just be naturally beautiful and happy with that. Uh, and not strive to be, and not strive to better yourself, uh, because Snow White gets through everything that she gets through because she is naturally beautiful, and people are charmed by her beauty. I don't necessarily think that's the only or the best reading of it, but that is a reading. Well, listen, if you can talk to animals and charm the heart of Grumpy, the meanest dwarf, one day you might get a prince to wake you up from your death. And take you off to a castle to live forever. Exactly. Yeah, that could happen to you too. I do just, in this moment, Grumpy, I think, might be my favorite character in the entire Disney version. I think he is hilarious and gives voice to a lot of the sort of uh, inappropriate and unsavory uh, thoughts about women that were not only of the time that this fairy tale sort of was birthed out of, but were still prevalent in 1937 and are still prevalent today uh, when Grumpy says, all females is poison. They're full of <laughs> wicked wiles. I'm like, oh, damn, Grumpy, that's not cool. But even Grumpy's heart can be melted. Even Grumpy can be sort of turned to the other side by a person who is sincere, who is genuinely full of love, who has a, a healthy amount of naivete, but who uh, is clearly motivated by a desire to care for people of all types and to see the best in people. So can I pivot us to a similar topic? Is that cool? Absolutely. Because I really want to talk about the dwarfs. I really want you to talk about the dwarfs. Because if uh, those listening who have played Dungeons and Dragons with me know that I'm almost always a dwarf. Yes. Most people who've seen Lord of the Rings with me know that like Gimli is my favorite character. I identify with the dwarves and I love the seven dwarves in this, and I think they're freaking great. And it kind of begged a question that I wanted to tackle through the lens of this episode, yeah. which is, where did dwarves come from? What's the history of the dwarf as a mythological creature, as a creature that we can talk about? So we know dwarves primarily through two lenses in the modern era. The first is Snow White, and the second is The Hobbit. Funny thing, The Hobbit, which features a whole cast of dwarves who are colorful and interesting and weird characters, much like our seven dwarves of Snow White. Those two pieces of artwork came out in the same year, 1937. So the book by J.R.R. Tolkien was written in 1937? Was written, well, that's when it was first published. Okay, great. In 1937, the same year that Snow White and the Seven Dwarves came out. I'm not sure exactly which one came out um, before the other, but the point is, 
they weren't really informing each other because both were working on their projects well before they came out. So they both had an archetype of a dwarf that they were drawing from. And that archetype of a dwarf is a man. Most, most commonly dwarfs are male. You don't see many female dwarfs. Small in stature, typically bearded, uh, known to being sort of uh, vivacious, outgoing, sometimes friendly, sometimes dangerous, sometimes a little playful, sometimes a little, you know, hard-headed. And these stereotypes, where did those come from? Well, partly, we go back to the source material, the Brothers Grimm, writing down Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, kind of solidified a Germanic version of the dwarf. Going back before that, it gets a lot harder. It gets a lot trickier. A lot of uh, scholars and mythological nuts such as ourselves will talk about the dwarves as written through Norse mythology. Now, in the Norse mythology, there are the dwarves, but the dwarves are also called the dark elves. There are synonymous terms. So there are the dwarves who do things like make Mjolnir, but those are also the dark elves. They live in Dokalafar, which is the realm of the dark elves, which is part of the realm of Midgard. So they live with us here on Midgard. They can sometimes do terrible things, such as like the meat of poetry, if you are familiar with this story. Two dwarves essentially just murder a bunch of people in it, and then eventually Odin takes their mead from them, which gives people the gift of poetry. Um, but they will also make Mjolnir the weapon of the, the hammer of Thor, which he uses to defend all the gods. So sometimes they're a little tricky. Sometimes they're a little evil. Sometimes they're good at building and making things. It's a common thing that you see in the Norse dwarves. So much of the dwarves that we know today come from the dark elves or dwarves of Norse mythology. The word dwarf itself, nobody really, I couldn't find anyone to say what language it really originated from. There's Middle English, there's Old English, there's Germanic, there's Scandinavian. So many different linguistical roots to the word dwarf that it's hard to really figure out where this word originally came from. The one thing that at least it tells me is that a lot of people were telling stories about them in a lot of different languages. So much so, we don't really know who did it first. There's no link between short statured and the word dwarf, linguistically in its origins. Mm, wow. So the question comes, how did dwarves come to be known to be short, smaller than the average size? The, big, the best theory that I found is that dwarves were more like spirits, sprites, and fairies. They were these magical creatures who lived in the realm of humans, who could interact with humans and kind of like the jinn that we talked about, be the shepherd with between, Aladdin, yeah. Yeah, the, the shepherd between the realm of the spirit and the divine and the gods and the realm of humans. There are these sprites, these spirits, these lesser deities. And from the idea of them being lesser deities, they think evolved the idea of them being short of stature, that the idea of them not being the top God, but a lesser God eventually got misinterpreted to them being short because they were lesser. That's really interesting. And it makes me think of about the evolution of elves too. Like how did they go from being, uh, you know, like Galadriel and uh, Elrond and that kind of thing, obviously in the Lord of the Rings tradition to cobbling elves who are uh, ticking away at your shoes. So it feels like the relationship between those two may have uh, sort of been hand-holding into this new tradition of them. That's very interesting. And in so many religious and mythological worlds and our structures or pantheons, if you will, there are these lesser creatures who interact with humans and they help be that go between between the humans and the gods or the humans and God, if it's a monotheistic religion like the jinn in Islam. So the dwarf is part of that that's what, at least from what I found, to be the most dominant theory. So why have these dwarfs then in Snow White? If not for them to be part of shepherding Snow White's divine transformation that we see when she rises from death and that we see when she comes back from the grave. The dwarfs are there when she is in this symbolic wilderness this literal wilderness, pardon me, but symbolic underworld 
they're the spirits that are sheltering and guiding Snow White to her eventual ascend into heaven and into eternity. I think, in other words, this is a story about life, death, and rebirth told through the feminine um, biological structure of growing up of age, having to leave the home, the home itself being hostile, into a more hostile world, and trusting that these other spirits, like Sneezy and Dopey, will help give you what you need till eventually you get to be reborn again. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm uh, yeah, I'm really I'm just sitting with that for a moment, but I think that's really interesting. Please sit. Yeah. You know, and so many myths are fundamentally about the same thing, the yeah. cycle of life, death and rebirth. That they come down to the idea a hero, a heroine needs to go into the underworld and come back because only through death can there be life. And that is a fact that humans understood mythically and we still understand Today, more like bio, like we would describe it in terms of biology, in terms of the cycles of, you know, um, the seasons. But to the ancient person, they didn't have like these knowledge systems to explain these phenomenon. So it became more about a descent into the underworld and then a rebirth into spring. Yeah. I'm thinking about this too with the sort of literal places, literal locations that the characters go to. And I'm thinking about the symbolism of the forest uh, and how uh, Snow White has to take off from the castle and enter the forest in order to come into her own. It's uh, you know a motif that we see not just in fairy tales, like I'm thinking about Hansel and Gretel as well does this, um, but we see it in the medieval romance, we see it in Shakespeare, we see it kind of all over the place where uh, people have to leave the sort of rigid courtly environment of the castle of the family of the hearth of the home and enter this land of a sort of wild and unruly wilderness. Snow White enters uh, the forest and is immediately on all sides confronted with eyes and spirits and things that are terrifying to her until she finally opens up and realizes it's just a bunch of friendly woodland creatures who are coming to sing along with her. She goes under a, a transformation when she enters the woods. Her clothes get a little bit tattered, and she has to go and find a new home that is away from where she was born, that is away from where she was raised. And she really becomes a, a, a woman there. She becomes the kind of person who immediately uh, instinctively takes on maternal uh, roles with a bunch of people that she finds in the woods. She's more comfortable there than she was at court. And the queen undergoes a similar transformation, just in the opposite direction. In the pursuit of being the fairest of all, she has to literally put on a disguise to make herself a wicked old hag, to make herself uh, a, a decrepit old woman, to enter the woods and try to uh, trick Snow White into undoing herself. They both have to undergo this transformation. But Snow White flourishes from it, and the evil queen uh, is is damaged by it. I think it's it's an interesting sort of uh, literal uh, journey away from childhood into a, a next stage of development that happens in the wilderness. Yeah, and there's also the connection, the medieval standards of physical beauty were very much linked to the idea that if you were born beautiful, it was because God had blessed you to become beautiful. Sure. So you must innately be a beautiful creature. If you look like an angel on earth, it's because you're actually angelic in quality. And that's why some people are better looking than others. And if someone is not as good looking, it's because they didn't get that same blessing from God. So hence, there is a connection between moral conviction and exterior beauty. It's an idea that is deeply problematic yeah and should be completely de and is has been completely debunked as we all know there is no actual connection between one's exterior good looks and one's moral quality and moral decision making in life yeah it's just a coincidence that i am so gorgeous and so moral <laughs> <laughs> it is yeah <laughs> absolutely but it snow white is very much reinforcing that idea it's very much about that idea. We don't necessarily, we don't really see the queen take a disguise. 
we see her physically transform herself to become more ugly through magic. Yeah. We see her collection of books, all of these, like, this is another thing. They show books. The only time you see books in this whole thing, it's when you see the evil queen's books and they're all like, Black magic, magic and alchemy. How to eat your children and get yeah. away with it. Like all of these like horribly like damning pagan, like all of these books. If you read these books, you'll transform into this old hag type stuff. But she does. She physically transforms herself yeah. into a more ugly person, which is to symbolically reflect her terrible moral decisions that she makes. Yeah, that's the other aspect, too, of going into the woods is that it's revelatory of your true nature. It's a place where uh, the rules don't apply and there is a sort of supernatural abundance. You can run into dwarves at every corner. There are probably fairies and spirits in all of the trees and your true nature is revealed. Uh, it happens the second that the huntsman tries to kill Snow White and we realize that he can't actually do it. And then Snow White runs into the woods. She finds out who she is. The queen goes into the woods and it's clear to us who she is. You know, I want to bring in some of the commentary of a scholar that I referenced on last week's Sleeping Beauty podcast, Maria Tatar, who writes uh, uh, critically on fairy tales. And she wrote an article called From Nags to Witches, Stepmothers and Other Ogres which I think is a fantastic title, Nags to Witches instead of Rags to Riches. Um, but she talks about how recurrent this theme of the evil stepmother or mother-in-law or mother substitute really is, uh, and how part of this, of course, is just the uh, toning down of how the original stories often were about uh, biological or natural mothers wanting to devour their children, but the Grimm brothers used a special word, a German word that doesn't really have a, a translation in English for women like this. And that word was, oh, forgive me, Menschenfresserin, which means devourer of humans. It applies not only to Snow White's stepmother, but the stepmother or mother, biological mother, depending on which version you're reading of Hansel and Gretel, and the mother-in-law of Sleeping Beauty. It's a recurring theme that constantly harps on this idea of cannibalism, on this idea of jealousy, on this idea of women usurping each other's places in the home. And Tatar says, quote, the many faces of maternal evil in fairy tales represent the obverse of all the positive qualities associated with mothers. Instead of functioning as nurturers and providers, cannibalistic female villains withhold food and threaten to turn children into their own source of nourishment, reincorporating them into the bodies that gave birth to them, end quote. So there's sort of a perverse uh, kind of reaction going on here, where mothers who are supposed to give food to their children, or mothers who are supposed to provide for their children, are actually longing to reincorporate them. Wow. Yeah, it's really disturbing. Uh, but Tatar here is sort of painting the idea that this is this is just one recurring mother, right? Th these aren't distinctly um, uh, described women. These aren't uh, specific women. This is a vague, overreaching fear and a vague, overreaching preoccupation of fairy tales that is really just referring to this one type of evil, this maternal evil. And it's really sad and kind of scary to uh, confront, but it makes me think of so many horror movies, too, that, uh, that deal with this idea of uh, maternal gone wrong. And, it, and deep down, it, I'm talking somewhat um, improvisationally, because I don't know if what I'm going to say is true, but this is the thought that has popped into my mind, Working out through the safety and confines of the fairy tale myth and cinema allows us to reconcile with the thought that maybe our mom wanted to kill us at one point. Oh God. You know, like and and not and not in a literal sense, but in a symbolic sense to be like, hey, maybe our mothers didn't love us. Maybe we weren't as deserving of their love. Maybe they would rather just consume us, put them back, put put us back into the bodies that we came from, and then just have us die there, as opposed to letting us be born and grow. 
I, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out. Well, it's it's interesting. It depends on how you interpret it. Is it a deep fear on behalf of children, or is this a fear that's being uh, expressed that is uh, deep and inherent to motherhood? Is this, uh, uh, depending on the, the situation, is this giving voice to something like postpartum depression? Is this giving voice to mm. something like competition for resources in a really fucking terrible world to be in, like the medieval world? Uh, what is this giving voice to, and who is the one giving the voice? That's an interesting thought, because my frame of reference is as a son, I will never be a mother. Right. You know, like, no matter what, that's not possible for me and because of that i instantly see it from the lens of the snow whites and cinderellas and sleeping beauties mean like oh my mother doesn't love me my mother wants to destroy me it's because i'm obviously not worthy you know like and that's how that's instantly how i read what that could mean but what you touched on there is that it could actually mean the reverse right it could mean the fear of a mother being like i'm not motherly enough i'm not maternal enough I'm not able to provide for the children. Maybe I secretly resent my children. And maybe that's the anxiety that's being worked out here because Snow White is so maternal. Yeah. She even says, oh my God, there's children here without a mom. I'll be their mom. Meanwhile, her actual mother is trying to fucking kill her. Yeah, yeah, it's wild that all of this is kind of being worked out together and that it's so recurrent throughout fairy tales. Yeah, very, very interesting. I mean, the main takeaway is that we're all a little bit fucked up about our parents. Yeah. Yeah, like Freud was right about that. We're all a little bit insecure or messed up, and it's all because of our parents. And their parents did it to them, and so the cycle goes on. And we'll do it to our children. And we'll do it to ours. We're all just a little bit disturbed. And because we're all a little bit disturbed, that's why we have these stories. Yeah, but hopefully none of us will make our parents or step-parents dance around in uh, burning hot shoes. This is true. Yeah. This is true. All right, what else you got? So uh, just moving on to talk a little bit more about some of the iconic imagery from Snow White, the fairy tale, and from uh, the Disney movie. We touched a little bit on the poison apple with regard to Persephone, but I would be remiss if I didn't point out the sort of uh, Judeo-Christian elements of that and how much it evokes Eve taking a bite of the apple in the Garden of Eden. Uh, That's the fruit of knowledge And for Snow White, uh, there's a case to be made that taking the bite of the apple uh, is a symbolic coming of age for her, is uh, sort of indicative of uh, moving into a a stage of womanhood. But that's not the only Christian imagery in the story. And I think the other major uh, piece of iconography from Snow White that evokes Christianity is the glass coffin. So you and I were in Rome a couple of years ago, and if you've ever been to Rome or if you've ever been to a major Catholic church, you have probably seen relics on display, if not uh, saints' bodies on display. And they're usually done so uh, by way of a glass coffin or some kind of case that you can see in and see the, uh, the remains of this saint. And there is a phenomenon that's documented in the church known as incorruptibility, Uh, And this refers to uh, the sort of uh, Catholic tradition of displaying saints whose bodies are so holy that they refuse to decay. Uh, And there's a a few tests that you have to go to before you're declared incorrupt and can be called an incorruptible saint before, uh, before the church. There's a few on display, or at least one on display, in uh, St. Peter's Basilica. Yes, we have seen an incorruptible. Yeah, uh, and it's kind of it's kind of a creepy thing to see. Just like Sleeping Beauty, it's sort of the intersection of like eternity, uh, immortality almost, and uh, like eternal youth, and also something that looks like death or is death. And Snow White goes through this sort of rite. She's displayed in a bla- in a glass coffin. Seemingly dead, everyone who comes upon her sees that she is dead and wishes to venerate her like she is a saint, like she is a holy saint who refuses to decay, and yet she is beautiful. She is still desired. People want to put her uh, in their halls so that everyone can come by and see her, even though she is clearly dead. Uh, So I think there's an interesting intersection where the story is telling us 
even though we know at the end of it that she is still alive, she just has a poison apple lodged in her throat, the story is telling us that she is saintly, that she is holy, that she is saint-like in some way, um, but also giving us that intersection of uh, a horrible thing like death and a wonderful thing like her uh, saintly beauty. And she's also surrounded by Germanic fairies known as dwarfs. Yeah. These pagan symbols and pagan characters that exist in a pantheon of Germanic and Norse deities that stand in contrast to Christianity. Christianity pardon yeah, me. sure. And so we have this blend, too, of both the pagan and the Christian. We see the incorruptible, canonized, saint-like Snow White surrounded by these seven personifications of different human characteristics known as dwarves. And you can imagine how, as Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm were going around the countryside collecting these tales, those sort of seemingly incompatible things might live side by side in folklore. That stories passed down through generations might care little for uh, whether an incorruptible can be venerated by a, a pagan spirit. Uh, that folklore cares probably very little for dogmas and orthodoxies. And theological and philosophical contradictions, because very much, I mean, I've definitely come to the opinion that these stories that the Grimm brothers wrote down were relics of myths that were probably hundreds, if not thousands of years old. I genuinely believe that, and I believe that there's also a cross-section between things that we know as myths of, in particular, the Western world and things that we know as fairy tales in the Western world and that they are not that dissimilar, that the structures are basically there. What have we done these last two episodes if not found the similarities between this and other mythological stories, but we call these ones fairy tales and folk tales because they come from Christians and because they are passed down orally and because they aren't about gods and goddesses, when it, whereas the actual bare bones of the story is very much the same as what we say about the gods and goddesses of the old. And it reminds us that we're still working out the same problems. We're still working out the same fears that lie deep within our bones about our relationships between parents and the younger generation, about our uh, fear of dying young, about our you know, confrontation of mortality and even just the simple fears of what is moving out there in the darkness, that we're all still working on these things through the thing that is the most powerful in our, uh, our world, which I think is storytelling and language, something that helps us to uh, confront and reconcile these fears. Great, yeah, all right. Any final thoughts? Uh, I, I think uh, I think that's it. Until next time, guys, be kind. Don't eat that apple. 